We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real Steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Ah, England. Our relationship is, well, complicated. I'll admit that at times my attitude towards the English game can be defensive or protective and even resentful. But in light of recent events, I find myself unable to muster my usual snark, cynicism, or condescension about England. As a matter of fact, you are king. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about England's dominance. We will have our Mossy Makes the Case segment, where he's going to be talking about the karma of player transfers. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment. We'll be talking about Zlatan and Darth Vader and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good. Uh, Alexia, are you aware of what is taking place tomorrow, Tuesday evening at Cashman Field in Las Vegas, Nevada? I am not, but I'm sure you're about to tell me because it will be a horrible setup if you didn't pay it off. The Eric Winalda managed Las Vegas Lights will face uh, the Keith Costigan managed Cal FC in the second round of the U.S. Open Cup. Wow. Two of our colleagues and or former colleague uh, with Eric Winalda facing off in the Open Cup, mano a mano, uh, as head coaches of their teams. Well, So who are you rooting for? It's tough. Uh, <laughs> two people very important in my life. And, and by the way, storylines abound here because Eric Winalda used to manage Cal FC. He orchestrated right. a famous U.S. Open Cup win over the Portland Timbers. This is Imagine his tournament. Imagine is... if he was on the wrong end of a Cal FC giant killing moment. And you know it's better better than I do. Uh, Eric and Keith, no love lost there. So I mean, it's, I, uh, I maintain that Eric. This is a, this is the the overriding reason why Eric Winalda agreed to coach Las Vegas Lights was because of the potential to get back into that tournament that he knows and loves and where he can tweak and poke uh, at the quote-unquote establishment out there and show the, uh, what he is as a, as a coach. I love it, and, and it's wonderful. I, I, I hope he gets that opportunity, but if he gets that opportunity going through our good friend and colleague Keith Costigan, I don't know. Yeah, I'm torn too. I actually considered hopping on a flight to Vegas and attending this game, but uh, I have a buddy in town, and we're going to the Dodgers game tomorrow night. So, but I will be following. Uh, Vegas on sounds the phone. like a whole lot more fun. But, <laughs> well, uh, the other thing that we keep uh, keep up with you, uh, and we kind of have to, is this ridiculousness that is uh, the Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, Thrones. What is it? Th Thrones. Thrones. Yeah. Okay, Game of Thrones. So we have two now left. No, one. One, uh, one left last next week. Was the second to last. This was the, the penultimate, penultimate episode. This was the penultimate say. episode. And how are you and your uh, freaks uh, responding to this week's episode? I have to say, last night's episode was very problematic. It is getting just torched uh, by the television intelligentsia. 
Really? Yes. In terms of just jumping the the, the shark and uh, just not even yeah, you know, although maintaining we've been, any although level we've been of credibility? Although we've been spoiled the last 15, 20 years, one of the unfortunate hallmarks of this prestige era of television is that all these shows feel compelled when they get to the final season to do a different number of episodes than they had been doing. And so it throws off the pacing and the flow. And by the way, that, that was an issue twice for me last night, one much more dramatic than the other. Veep also went off the air last night, right? which is a show I love. It was a series finale. And they also did this awkward, truncated, seven-episode final season, which felt very abrupt. Game of Thrones is doing a six-episode final season, and so they're having to rush the story And l- without giving up any major plot points. Last night, a character who's ostensibly been one of the good guys, in fact, some might argue the hero of the show, uh, broke bad, had this incredible heel turn, and, but the whole thing felt very clumsy and unearned. And now going into the final episode, this is supposed to be the villain that we're going to root against after we just spent 99% of the time of the show rooting for this person. The way it was done was not great. And, and I, even I have to admit that this show is, is now deserving of the criticism. So now they have the, the series finale coming up. Right. And it is few and far between the show that is able to end on a high note when it comes to a season, not a season, a series finale. I was actually just listening to a podcast. I'll give them a, a plug. Uh, Stuck in the 80s podcast, which uh, is wonderful. I love it every week. And they were actually going over 80s comedies and their season, sorry, not their season, their series uh, finale when it comes to that last show and which ones were good and which ones weren't and you know Bob Newhart and MASH and all these different things it's it, it must be hard to encapsulate, especially if you've been on for a number of years and a number of uh, seasons, to be able to get that last show that lives up to everything that came before and ties up all the loose ends or doesn't tie up the loose ends and to appease people like I'm staring at right now, like uh, you and Alex, on a uh, continual basis. It must be very, very difficult. So this is this is not trending and heading in the right direction in terms of of a MASH series finale type of thing. No, I'm very concerned after last night. The expression that's used often is sticking the landing. Sticking uh, the landing, and yes. Did, now did Seinfeld, because I know you're a big Seinfeld fan, did they stick the landing? No, uh, that was considered to be a very disappointing finale. You know, a show I never watched uh, on HBO called Six Feet Under yep. is often hailed as having had the greatest final episode of any TV show. Apparently it ended in such a way that people still rave about it. So I, I actually want to go back and Cheers watch was, that show. Cheers was pretty good, too. Uh, good. Okay, well, we'll see if this if they can totally redeem themselves uh, <laughs> come this last episode uh, next week. And then, and then we can stop talking about it. And when I say we, I mean you, not me, because then I can finally actually binge it. Because as we know, my uh, steadfast rule is that I don't watch something unless I can binge it from start to finish. And come this time next week, it will be over, and I will be able to watch it from start to finish. <laughs> I may or may not do it. Actually, I think I will, given all the uh, talk about it. See what all the hoopla is. All right, Mossy, enough talk about uh, this. Ready to uh, light this candle? Yep. All right. As always, we start the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, indeed. It's time for my State of the Union, where I look at the game through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. And this week, it goes a little something like this The king is dead. Long live the king. Ah, England, our relationship is, well, complicated. You've provided me with endless opportunities to ridicule and needle and mock you. You've been a wonderful foil, and I truly enjoy our back and forth because you give as good as you get. I think you call it bants, and, well, it hurts so good. I'll admit that at times my attitude towards the English game can be defensive or protective and even resentful of the long history that has seen England heavily influence our American soccer culture. From style of play, to coaching, to broadcasting, to language, England has had and continues to have a huge impact on American soccer and the American soccer psyche. But in light of recent events, namely Liverpool and Spurs in the UEFA Champions League final and Chelsea and Arsenal in the Europa League final, I find myself, if only for a brief moment, unable to muster my usual snark cynicism or condescension about England. As a matter of fact, I got to give it up to you. You are king. Congratulations. Right now, you have the best teams, you have the most popular league, and you are the epicenter for and the embodiment of success, both on and off the field. You deserve praise and respect, and you have mine. The English poet William Blake once wrote of a romantic New Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land, and having this new paradise shining forth upon England's clouded hills. Well, when it comes to the beautiful game, at least for now, you are bathed in a bright shining light. 
and you have indeed built a new football heaven. Cheers. All right, Mossy, there is my uh, State of the Union. Did you ever think you would see this day when all four teams in Champions League final and uh, Europa League final would be from England? We talked about it before, but it was always kind of this this possibility in the future that we would uh, poke our friend Warren Barton about happening. But it has finally happened. Well, the interesting thing for me is Premier League clubs have the most money because of the television deal, but... Mm -hmm. That has not manifested itself at the top of the transfer market. If you look at the top 10 biggest transfers in football history, there's only one that involves a player leaving another league to go to the Premier League, which is Paul Pogba from Juventus to United in 2016. The other earth-shattering moves the last couple of years have been Neymar to PSG, Mbappe to PSG, Ronaldo leaving Real Madrid to go to Juventus. So it's not as simple as they have the most money, they buy the best players. Now, Tottenham aside, the other big English clubs have spent a lot of money, so they have deep squads with lots of good players. But this, to me, is a managerial triumph above all else. The Premier League went out and got the best managers and from different countries, different influences. Klopp is German. Pochettino is Argentine. Pep and Unai Emery are Spaniard. Chelsea have gone the Italian route with Conti and Al Sadi. Even United with Mourinho, although it didn't end well, he won a Europa League title there. So he contributed to this uh, renaissance. So, I mean, to me, that's the key. I think uh, they, the managers deserve a lot of credit. But shouldn't, because it's not Relative to MLS, we know it, it, it is still a have-and-have-not type of league. But relative to Spain or to Germany or to Italy, there's much more parity when it comes to the, the league. So shouldn't, that, shouldn't it be relative to the league and then therefore it be the talent be diluted because there's not one team that has all the best players in the world like a, a Real Madrid? So why is it now that this is starting to manifest in terms of results? I get what you're saying about right. good, good coaches and smart minds out there, but is it all down to that? I think a lot of it is down to that. And, you know, there's always been this feeling that when English teams were struggling in the Champions League, the excuse they pulled out was that the Premier League is more taxing. It's a more mm -hmm. challenging league week in, week out than those other ones. And now here they are. They've These clubs have been able to overcome that. So, yeah, it shows you they've just done that good a job, those managers, I think, where they've been able to kind of overcome uh, those obstacles. Okay, so the big question is, is this an aberration? Is this an anomaly? Are we going to be sitting here a year from now, uh, good Lord willing, uh, we're all here sitting here talking about it, and are we, are, we, are we looking at a possible scenario where no English teams are there? Is, is this the start of a, a, a long history and a, uh, a juggernaut, if you will, when it comes to EPL teams? All four might be an aberration, but I think we're trending in the direction of the Premier League uh, beginning to dominate here. I, I thought they would kind of have to wait out Messi and Ronaldo, but they were positioned to be the league once Messi and Ronaldo exited the scene, and now it might even be happening sooner to kind of emerge as the dominant league. You know, it's funny too. Some people are trying to poo-poo the notion of how English is this really uh, by pointing out that all four of these clubs are managed by foreigners, three of the four are managed by foreigners. And if you look at the lineups that uh, Liverpool, Tottenham, Chelsea, and Arsenal ran out this past week in their respective second legs, only eight of the 44 players uh, were English, which I think is a fair point to bring up and an interesting aspect of this discussion. But as far as being a zinger to the English, that works a lot better when the national team is struggling because right. then you can say, well, that's the right. trade-off. Okay, sure, you have the best league because you import the best foreigners, but it comes at the detriment of your national team and you guys never win anything at the even, international yeah, level. That we don't even on. have that because they <laughs> arguably have the best national team in the world right now. I mean, if, if the World Cup was this summer, I would pick England as my favorite to win it. They've done great at youth level. They're pumping out players like crazy, so they have it all going on right okay, now. Okay, all right. I mean, you know, I, I just gave them the props for what they've done from an EPL standpoint. I don't need to do the international <laughs> level to, too, but you're, you, you are absolutely right. It is, and as I said in the State of the Union, the, the epicenter of things that are happening both on and off the field. And it's something that has been created over time. And yes, the bringing up the money is is a huge, huge part of it. It doesn't happen without these types of ridiculous broadcast, not ridiculous because these are, these are smart business folks that are making calculated uh, decisions in terms of what they're spending. But the amount of money that they are able to uh, uh, able to spend over there is is phenomenal. So, so you think that this is still a trend that's going to continue going forward. And look, yeah. this doesn't mean that all four are going to be there every year. I think this is just an incredible demonstration of how good these teams uh, ultimately uh, ultimately are. Now, on the managers, the Champions League final, it's a delicious matchup mm -hmm. because both Klopp and Pochettino have done an incredible job at their respective clubs, but they still get hit over the head in some quarters for not having won a trophy. One of them is going to put that to bed. The other one, it's going to be interesting to see what their reaction is for the loser. I suspect Pochettino would get a pass. I think there's a recognition that just getting Tottenham to a Champions League final is an incredible achievement, especially in a season where they didn't sign any players. They didn't have a home stadium for much of the campaign. If 
Klopp loses, his finals record is going to start to become a thing. He'd be 0-3 in Champions League finals, counting the Dortmund one against Bayern, 0-3 in European finals for Liverpool, counting the Europa League against Sevilla, and something like 0 for his last seven finals. So that whole Buffalo Bills tag, uh, you know, so I, I do think there's, there's more pressure on Klopp than Pochettino here. Do you agree? Yes, I do think absolutely there's more pressure on Klopp. Uh, and, and it really comes down to because, and, and, and look, Mossy, I don't want to paint any of these teams as these little engines that could, you know, just just punching above their weight, little plucky little <laughs> spurs or anything like these are these are super clubs that have more money than 99 percent of the clubs that exist exist in the world. But this is the world in which they inhabit. And so this is the world in which they compete. They're not competing with all the other teams that are down lower in their league or other or or, or most of the teams that exist in most of the leagues around the world. They're competing against the elites in the super club, uh, the, the super club right now. But when it comes to the transfer window, when you don't do anything in the transfer window, uh, it's, now it's two transfer windows, right? That, uh, that Correct, Spurs haven't yeah. done anything. That is mind-blowing type of stuff. Because the reason why they are super clubs is because they spend so much money and they go out there and they buy uh, their talent up. Now, when I tip my hat, which is what the State of the Union was to, to England, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm tipping my hat to... Uh, to England's players, and this goes back to your international aspect up, I do think it's absolutely valid to talk about the product on the field, for the most part, is not English in its, in its inception and in its, uh, and in its fostering. Uh, they, are, they are importing that talent. The product that I am tipping my hat to is the EPL and what they've done. And it's not just happened over a year. This has happened over the last 20 years. And you know, for all the, the good-natured banter that we have and the willingness and the uh, joy that I get from poking England, I, as I said, what has been done is a wonderful case study and a template for a business. And I know people don't like to talk about business, but ultimately what the EPL is, is an incredible business in the way that they went about creating this league, first off, marketing this league, bringing in people that make the league stronger, i.e. oligarchs and, and people with a tremendous amount of money, and then capitalizing on the global exposure of the league from the players to the clubs to the league in, in itself and making these teams not just super clubs within their country and within their league, but super clubs all around the world and brands, the brand of the EPL and then the individual brands that make up the EPL, branding them all over the world so that people are so invested in these teams, which, get, uh, which gets to you know, the point of Jurgen Klopp, and in particular Liverpool, uh, when it comes to what is more important for them and what was more important to them going forward in terms of what they, what they would want to win at the end of this year. Funny, I've been thinking about Mourinho a lot the last couple of days because he's he's actually mellowed the last few months and has become a, a very good analyst. But when he first got sacked by United and got on TV, he was very bitter and he was just kind of using it as a platform to air out his grievances. And he went on his whole spiel about how I don't understand how I win all these trophies and I get criticized while the media fawns over guys who don't win anything. And everyone assumed he was talking about Klopp and Pochettino, and particularly Klopp. Mm -hmm. Mourinho supposedly has this big complex about Klopp, thinks he's overrated. There's a famous story a couple of years ago. Mourinho went to this Premier League sponsors event, and there was some Premier League bigwig that was going to give a speech at the end of the night extolling the virtues of the league. And Mourinho found out there was going to be a line in the speech that referenced, oh, Premier League has the greatest managers in the world from Pep to Mourinho to Klopp to Conti. And Mourinho made a point of making the guy take Klopp's name out of the line because he said he doesn't belong in that category. And Mourinho, I know, has, has referred to Klopp as a serial runner-up. So again, Klopp can completely put that to bed. But I will say, after having finished second in the Premier League, if he loses the Champions League final, that whole serial runner-up thing actually will give... I hate to say it, I love Klopp, but it would give some truth to it. And we're going you know, to talk about the uh, about this later on as it relates to Man City, uh, later on in the pod here. But you know, I will say this. It is, it is fascinating how when it gets to these super clubs, yes, the money is important, but how that narrative changes on one result here and one result there when, when these, these teams are winning ridiculous amounts, historic amounts of games, uh, garnering historic amounts of, uh, of points, and yet we are left to judge them on this one thing. And I think that's Mourinho's point, is that ultimately this is about winning. And it goes back to our conversation last week where we talked about identity and philosophy of play and all this kind of stuff and the fact that the, the only real identity 
at least in Mourinho's mind, is winning. How you end up doing that, you can have a million different ways. But if you don't do that, to be that romantic and to believe that not winning still is justification for the level of praise that Mourinho doesn't see is uh, is is adequate or is too much. That's fascinating. That's a, I think that's a peek into what drives Mourinho. And there's going to be a, a funny debate. The winner of the Europa League final between Chelsea and Arsenal is going to try to argue that they actually had a better season than the loser of the Champions League final on the basis that, hey, at the end of the day, it's about trophies. I'm sure Arsenal fans are already preparing that argument against Tottenham fans, and you know it's, it's going that way. So it'll be, that'll, that'll be... My last question before we move on. <laughs> does this all-England uh, domination... Does, is this a signal and a, a red flag and, an, and a flare emergency to the other leagues in that they better get their house in order and maybe make some changes within? Or is it really just a motivating type of thing and they will look at, all right, well, we're not, this isn't going to happen again. This was this one-time thing, but next year we're going to come back bigger and stronger. No, I think there's some real concern. The the La Liga president, Javier Tebas, this was the thinking behind staging a game in the United States. He's been trying to come up with these creative ways to sell the La Liga brand because he realizes that they've fallen way behind the Premier League in that regard, and they need to get creative and find ways to catch up. And and the traditionalists in Spain kind of blocked that, and I know he was very frustrated. So he he recognizes that there's a bigger issue here that they have to be very concerned in the coming years. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next year and if this is just the beginning or, as we said, if this is just up and down. Actually, one last note on trying to build up your brand. Juventus unveiled these ridiculous uh, new uniforms this past weekend that don't have the traditional stripes. Right. And supposedly, the reason for it is they did some market research and they found that in the United States, uniforms with stripes people associate with referees. Right. And that contributed to the Juventus jersey not selling as well in the United States. And so, I mean, here's the, one of the traditional powers in, in European football, changing this historic jersey in order to, to have this new model that sells better in the United States. So that tells you how much these clubs now are, are concerned about their brand, and particularly here in the United States. And so, yeah, I think that all falls into this whole trying to compete and keep up with the Premier League. Well, for what sure. it tells you is ultimately when it really comes down to it, America. <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's where your bread is buttered, ultimately. And you're damn right you're going to change it, because if America doesn't like it, all right, then it's not going to fly. So, yes, uh, they, they, uh, if, if, that, if that ends up being true and the market research showed that, yeah, I get it. And by the way, what is tradition anymore when it comes to when it comes to jersey when it comes to jerseys <laughs> and the jersey sales? All right, well we'll see how this ultimately finishes up when it comes to Champions League and to uh, Europa League. I, the only thing that we can be assured of is that there will be an England team <laughs> winning uh, both of these. So congratulations, England! It is it, you, as I said in the State of the Union, you deserve the praise. Uh, that you are getting, and you have my respect and praise for what you have done this year. We'll see what happens next year. <laughs> All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. Uh, David, what are you casing for this week? My case is that karma is a bitch. <laughs> I don't do this often in this space, but I'm going to put my Brazilian cap on and do a little venting. Uh, Barcelona and Liverpool have just engaged in an epic Champions League semifinal tie, and there is a parallel universe in which Neymar would have started both these legs for Barcelona and Coutinho would have started both legs for Liverpool. Unfortunately, both those bozos uh, wrecked their careers with ill-fated transfers. As a result, one wasn't involved at all while the other was playing for the wrong team. Even if you think those moves were justifiable at the time, there's no denying both have been a complete and utter disaster. And there is some poetic justice to how this Champions League semifinal played out from a Brazilian point of view. In the summer of 2017, PSG spent 220 million euros on Neymar. In January of 2018, Barcelona spent 160 million euros on Coutinho, ostensibly as a replacement for Neymar, although they tried to frame it as if he was a replacement for Iniesta. 
That same month, Lucas, who had become surplus to requirements at PSG, in large part due to the arrival of Neymar, was shoved off to Tottenham for the relatively paltry sum of 27 million euros. Why did PSG spend all that money on Neymar, and why did Barcelona spend all that money on Coutinho? In the hopes that they would have the kind of moment that Lucas had last week, tipping the balance in a big Champions League knockout match. I was very happy for Lucas that he had this moment in the sun. Lucas, Neymar, and Coutinho are all around the same age. They burst on the scene around the same time. They were each considered the next big thing. And while Neymar and Coutinho have enjoyed great success, they were Brazil's big stars at the last World Cup, Lucas has been branded a failure. He has one cap since 2015. He wasn't even in the conversation for a World Cup spot. And later this week, when the Copa America squad is announced, despite his heroics for Tottenham, I suspect... He will not be included, which of course will be incredibly disappointing, but he may well have a Champions League title as consolation this season. Wow. So I'm a little bit confused as to what you're saying. The grass is always greener. Is that what you're saying? Uh, and and well, what, are, are you enjoying the fact that these players failed? And why wouldn't they have made these decisions to go to these uh, go to these uh, go to these places? I think uh, if we can zero in on these cases specifically, I think Coutinho's uh, situation is a really cautionary tale for somebody like an Eden Hazard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. But uh, be careful. Uh, like I said, the grass is not always greener. When you're already at a big club, you're playing well, making lots of money. The fans love you. You've built up currency over several years. There's something to be said for that. And, you know, change can be risky. There's no guarantee you're going to settle at your next stop. And I say that because, by all accounts, Eden Hazard is off to Real Madrid. I mean, it's essentially a done deal. Uh, so, you know, we'll see how it turns out. I suspect he'll do well, actually. But I'm just saying, in general, you know, a guy like Coutinho, boy, I mean, did, did you really? He didn't, he didn't, he was still operating from the old playbook where Liverpool had become something of a stepping stone club right. to the likes of Barcelona and he just couldn't see that right around the corner with Klopp they were about to become a club on that level and why not stay and be a part of that and get to experience nights like Liverpool had the other night instead he just assumed that Barcelona would be a step up and it hasn't played out that yeah, way why wouldn't you have more respect and time for a decision and a unique and different decision the likes of which Neymar made to go to PSG this this team that was wanting to be one of the elites and certainly had plenty of money, and certainly he was paid plenty of money, but didn't he, in a certain sense, take the road less traveled and therefore, and, and the injury, injuries happen. Injuries can happen no matter what. It has nothing to do with grass is green or anything like that. The injuries happen. But I look at what Neymar did as taking much more risk and therefore more courage than what, say, Cristiano uh, did going to Juventus. Or even a Coutinho uh, going to uh, Barcelona. It's funny, Coutinho's struggles at Barcelona have, in, in a weird way, they've made me appreciate Neymar even more. I know it's forbidden to say anything nice about him. and His four years at Barcelona have been like airbrushed from history because they don't fit this narrative now that people want to put forth about him. But, you know, we've now seen how difficult it can be to play alongside Messi and to assert yourself. And for him to have gone to Barcelona at the age that he did and earn Messi's respect and play as well as he did and enjoy the success that he did, I think has actually become a bit underrated. And the shame of it is he invented a narrative in his mind that didn't exist, this notion that he had to escape Messi's shadow. He wasn't in Messi's shadow. He's not as good as Messi, but there's room for more than one superstar at a club. And he was a full-blown superstar at Barcelona, doing amazing things. He scored 39 goals one season, had 22 assists another one. He was the top scorer in the Champions League. The year they won the treble, he scored in both legs of the quarters, both legs of the semis, and the final. No other player has ever done that. He was a Ballon d'Or finalist. So it, I don't understand that, that thought process that he somehow felt like he needed to go to PSG to kind of get his full recognition and 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 have the spotlight all on him i i, I think in retrospect you know he he probably would regret that yeah, i think so, he invented but, an issue that didn't, but didn't what players should move then mossy if you're happy and you're doing well i mean what 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 player could move because you can still say that going to barcelona is a step up uh, and and that you are challenging yourself in a new in a new culture a new atmosphere and getting yourself out of your comfort zone uh, to your point, uh, Coutinho's situation is unsalvageable. They've decided they want to get rid of him. Actually, a lot of it hinges on the Chelsea transfer situation because if they, they've appealed that, that uh, transfer ban to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, if they can get it uh, wiped away or, or perhaps pushed back, uh, then they're going to go after Coutinho as a replacement for Hazard, presuming Hazard goes to Real Madrid. So that's his escape route, and I think that's how things would play out. So his situation is not salvageable. To your point, I do think the Neymar move does reflect a certain ambition on his part, and, and that 
that one, you know, we'll see. Maybe, you know, he, he has gotten injured the last two years. If he can stay healthy next season, if they perhaps get rid of Tuchel, bring in the right manager, there's still a scenario there where if he ever does win a Champions League title with PSG, I agree with you, that does elevate him because, you know, he will have taken a club to a level that they had never been at before. So, yeah, the Neymar one, I don't want him to leave yet. I, I, I don't want sort of the PSG thing to go down as a failure. I didn't love the move, but I, I think it's still salvageable and he should stay there and try to... Uh, have a happy ending. Well, let's let's bring it back around to both Brazil and the United States. If at the at the time that Pele made the decision to come to the NASL way back in the day, if you were advising him, would you have said that is a good move or a bad move? I know we, we it's played out, so we know what it ultimately became. But would you, from a purely, well, not necessarily just a purely Brazilian standpoint, but if you were advising him, what would you have said? Would you have said, look, it seems like a good idea, but it's not going to be everything you're cracked up to be, and you should go to Europe? Well, no. I mean, well, the NASL move came at the end of his career. He had already won three World Cups. His legacy was secure. He was regarded as the greatest player of all time. I guess the question would be, you know, him never having gone to Europe. Now, he played at a different time than now, so it, back then it was more acceptable to do that. It'd be interesting to see if Pele was around today. Like, would he feel, of course, I have to go to Europe, and that's that's where it's at. And, y- yes, you do have to go for that proverbial step up and, and try to go for the most glamorous, more prestigious club uh, possible. So, I mean, I guess that, that would be sort of the better yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking about, as I said, the, the road less travel, and I do give much more credit to those that have done things that that aren't predictable and that and that are different. And once again, I, I don't want to paint PSG as this this little <laughs> podunk type of uh, of environment or anything. It's it's any it's anything but. But you know what I mean when you're going to PSG as opposed, especially coming from Barcelona as opposed to going to Barcelona. I still think. I mean, so so can you think of a player right now that in the world that doesn't play for Real Madrid? or Barcelona, that if they came calling, would say no. I can't, I can't think. I mean, it's go, tough. Go, I mean, Mo those Salah? two clubs. Yeah, I, I think Liverpool have something special really? going on right now that I'm not sure Mo Salah would, would jump at that. But I know what you mean. 99% of the players, it's like, well, those clubs want me. Stop stop the press. Forget everything else. Of course, I got to go. I think you even know, at it, Liverpool, <laughs> players will say all the right things, and this is great, and this is my home, and my family's happy, and all that kind of stuff. But when you get that knock... And it is, it, it, I think it's still, it has such cachet and such pull that I think it's next to impossible for anybody to say no. Which is ironic as we talk about this era of the Premier League emerging right. as the dominant force. Yeah, I mean, just one last note on Lucas, and I, I'm sure there are U.S. players that you could sort of re- relate this to. Uh, you know, the burden of expectations. He was a player that was supposed to be this superstar. It hasn't happened. Now, he's had a much better career than people in Brazil give him credit for. I mean, he, he made over 200 appearances at PSG, was an important player there for all but just that last half season. When they brought in Neymar and Mbappe, he got squeezed out. And so he goes to Tottenham, and he's done what he's done there. But because he never became the superstar, his career has this air of disappointment to it and that's used as an argument against him being on the national team late last week there were still Brazilian commentators making this case that well we can't overreact to this one game look at his career I mean there's no way this guy belongs on a national team and then you say okay but then who does and they start naming players that aren't half as good as him that if they had been on PSG all those years wouldn't have sniffed the starting lineup but their careers engender a more positive feeling because they weren't supposed to be superstars they've kind of become what they were supposed to become and so it's funny how that sort of distorts our perspective I mean are there US players that you know because they never lived up to the hype, we sort of underrate their careers. They had they were better than we give them credit for, but you know because they yeah. weren't. You know, I mean, it's well. I I just think I I I, I wor- not I worry. I don't worry about your takes or, <laughs> but they're just your takes. But I think that you are in your mind punishing players for doing something that every other player would do, and you're punishing players in your mind for doing things that are different and that are unique. And you're saying the grass, the grass isn't all as greener. Fine, the, the, the grass, it may not be greener, but it might, it might be a different type of grass. <laughs> and there is a benefit, and I do think that there has to be a level of respect for those that have said, I'm gonna go try to play on a different type of grass and see how that goes. Even if I fail, or even if you're trying to measure it up with what happened where I was before. and and where does it stop? You know, does know, pick a player in the Bundesliga, Kai Havertz, if Liverpool called him and Bayern Munich called him, which 
are you going to say, well, the grass isn't always greener. You should stay, you should stay in, uh, in Germany because that's where you've made your name and stuff like that. Or do you go to Liverpool? I don't know. Look, uh, we're not going to uh, solve this, but uh, an interesting take nonetheless by uh, our good friend David Mossy. Anything else, Mossy? Nope, that's it. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on social media, and uh, we will pick a few each week as we did, and Mossy will read them as he is about to do. First up, at Kirk Kinsey. Better choke Zlatan on Sean Johnson or Darth Vader? <laughs> All right, so uh, for those that uh, hadn't heard or hadn't seen it, uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, playing for the Los Angeles Galaxy currently. They were playing a home game uh, here in Los Angeles against NYCFC. The goalkeeper for NYCFC is none other than Sean Johnson, a very talented and good goalkeeper. And they came together at a certain point after a missed chance by Zlatan. And Zlatan put his hand around Sean Johnson's neck and was reminiscent of the Darth Vader holding up. I can't remember who he was holding up. You Star Wars people will tell me who it is. But ultimately, uh, it was without a doubt intentional. I thought it was Bush League. I thought that uh, he would get a red card. He didn't get a red card. What ended up happening was the referee gave both of them yellow cards. Look, I love Zlatan. We talk about this each and every week. I love what he is on the field in terms of his villainous type of persona that he portrays on the field and off the field in the incredible personality and at times villainous persona that he plays off the field. However, putting your hand around the neck of a player I think it deserved a red at the time. Problem is that the call was made in the moment to give him a yellow card. I'm not sure that they're going to change it. Not necessarily because it's Zlatan, but the uh, the subjective nature of it when it comes to hands to face uh, and hands to head, how they're going to finish up, uh, how they're going to decide this week in terms of the disciplinary committee. I don't think anything's going to happen, but I thought it went way beyond and I thought in the moment that he should get uh, should get the red card and that that cartoon that Zlatan portrays uh, and that villain that Zlatan portrays is all fine and well in terms of what he says and in terms of what he does at certain at a certain point but to do something like that in that moment I thought it required much more uh, than a yellow card, but we'll see ultimately how, uh, how that happens. So if you really want an answer in terms of which was better, I think that there was much more justification when it came to Darth Vader. <laughs> What's next? At the elite? Is that how we're pronouncing that? Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're reading it. You can pronounce it any way you want. Do you think Messi and Argentina will win Copa this year? Here we go again, right? Trying to get Messi that uh, that international moment. Uh, no. I think, once again, uh, they will come up short. The interesting thing, uh, there are Copa Americas two years in a row now um, because they want to get on even-numbered years, and God forbid we just move the 2019 one to 2020. You know, everything is an excuse now to have extra tournaments. Sure. So for the second cycle... But Copa Ro America historically has been ridiculous right. in terms... There's there, there's no right, ritual right. or that right. we're doing it every, you know. So so for the second cycle in a row, we're going to have Copa Americas in back-to-back -back years, and Brazil hosted this summer while Argentina and Colombia co-hosted in 2020. And Brazil and Argentina are sort of at cross-purposes here. Chichi has made it clear... Like, Brazil, this is the one we're going to go all out to win. He's going to bring an experienced squad. It's at home. And then the 2021 will be in the midst of World Cup qualifying. We also have the Olympics that year. We'll see. It might be an experimental squad. And, you know, while Argentina, there's a sense that they still have an interim manager in Scaloni. They're still kind of in a state of flux. You know, this summer we'll go there. We'll give it our best shot. But not the end of the world if we don't win. The one we really want to win is at home in 2020. So it's interesting that Brazil and Argentina are sort of crisscrossed like that. And this summer's Copa America is shaping up to be kind of an odd tournament because a lot of these teams are kind of in transition you know the defending champions are actually chilly we've won the last two but they they look like kind of a spent force to me their, their new manager Reynaldo Rueda hasn't gotten off to a great start there 
And and it feels like they ran that golden generation to the ground. And to rely on guys like Alexis Sanchez and Arturo Vidal for too much longer, there's not much coming up behind them. Colombia could be dangerous. They just hired Carlos Carrosh. He's still kind of getting his feet wet yep. there. You know, you obviously have Brazil and Argentina, but I'm really looking at Uruguay if Suarez and Cavani are fit as, as actually the biggest threat to Brazil. Brazil, by virtue of being at home, is probably uh, you default to them as the favorite, but Uruguay, to me, are, are a real threat. So, But so you agree with me that you don't think that uh, Argentina no, and Messi? No, no. Because they're in a moment of transition? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, so there, well, there's your answer then. There's your answer. <laughs> Next question. At White Zin Wench, uh, <laughs> did the missus get something nice? Hashtag Mother's Day. First off, never would I ever call my wife uh, Mrs. So uh, you can do it, and, and I understand what you're saying, but you know that's like calling her baby or uh, my girl or you know all, all that kind of stuff. No, I don't. Uh, I don't call her my Mrs. But if you're asking about my wife, if she got anything nice, uh, yes, she did. I'm not going to tell you what she what she got, but it, it got me thinking about mothers and, and soccer mothers and those of us that have been around for a long time uh you know i contrary to popular opinion uh i have a mother i uh, am human being i have a mother she is and has been uh, and continues to be because you never stop being a soccer mother uh, a soccer mom uh, in the in the american sense certainly from a suburban perspective she didn't grow up with soccer but it came to her through her sons uh, as it has for a lot of soccer moms out there. And it was interesting seeing whether it's the women's national team or, or people talk about how important their mothers have been, not just for soccer people, but in our podcast world here, we're talking about soccer mothers. So yes, I did uh, get my wife something because she is now a soccer mom when it comes uh, it comes to our kids and how important soccer moms over the uh, years have been to me. The, hell hath no fury like a wife of a soccer player uh, or a significant other of a soccer player scorned. Uh, and hell certainly hath no fury like the mother of a soccer player scorned. My mom is uh, steeped in the whole, uh, you know, the whole social media aspect out there she's she goes way back she goes way back to like big soccer boards and and uh, fanzines and all that kind of stuff it was amazing she could she could list out every negative comment that any any person either in the media world or online had said about uh, her summer and she would ask me about uh, ask me about these things but you know when it comes to uh when it comes to our mothers in the soccer world, I think everybody would agree with me that they deserve everything and more and for what they have done in terms of the support, not just of us as soccer people, regardless of what level that you played, but of the sport. And this is nothing against soccer dads out there, but we're just talking about soccer moms uh, right now. So thank you to my soccer mom uh, and to the soccer mom that I have at home uh, that is my wife. My mother is actually coming to visit me next Is week. she really? Yes. My mother, by the way... Does she stay with you when she comes to visit you? No. Or? No. no. Uh, <laughs> what? No. no. No chance. Uh, my mother, quite taken by Liverpool. She loves the, the fans. You'll never walk alone. Like, I'm getting phone calls after these big Liverpool games. Like, oh my God, that was amazing. I'm so happy they won. So, Liverpool, you have a new convert. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. <laughs> we'll talk about that here in a second. Anything else? That is it. That is it for our hashtag Ask Alexi segment. Use that hashtag uh, on the social media platforms, like I said, each and every week. And uh, ask your questions and who knows maybe david mossy will read your question at a later date all right moving on the back three all right it's time for our back three we look at some big stories or games or moments from the last week mossy what's in our back three this week we begin in germany where the title race will go down to the very last weekend uh bayern munich had a chance to seal the deal uh but they could only muster a nil nil draw against leipzig very, very harsh offsides call, I have to say. Yes. Wiped away a goal that would have sealed the title. Uh, Dortmund beat Dusseldorf, so uh, the gap is now two points, Bayern ahead. They do have a healthy goal difference advantage, so a draw in their last game uh, would effectively do it. And the way it's worked out is amazing because Bayern hosts Frankfurt, that's Nico Kovac's former club. Dortmund are away to Gladbach, that's Lucien Favre's former club. And Frankfurt and Gladbach are battling each other for top four, along with Leverkusen, who face Hertha Berlin. 
Berlin. So it, it's actually pretty neat how everything worked out. Do you see Bayern getting the result they need and getting over the finish line? Nine. Nine, nine, nine. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, of course they do. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, I do see Bayern getting what what they need, whether it's a point or whether it's uh, whether it's three points at home. It's set up nicely for them so that they can celebrate yet another title in front of their home fans, bring out those big beer things and uh, go crazy and do all all of that kind of stuff and hold up the shield and uh, do those things. Yeah, I think it's I think it, that it's come down to this is a credit in the same way that. And we're going to talk about Man City in a second here. But in the same way that having Liverpool pushed Manchester City, having Dortmund this year pushed Bayern Munich. And once again, they're still a, a, a super club and they are still well ahead of everybody else. But the fact that we even had a title race and that we still going down to the last weekend, that is awesome. It's awesome for us, the broadcasters of the Bundesliga, but it's also just for fans of of exciting and interesting soccer that there is something on the line when it comes down to the last day and anything can happen now this Bayern game will be uh, the last home match for Robert and Ribéry right. uh, they still they'll do still have the German Cup final against Leipzig after that but I'm sure there'll be a lot of fanfare around that speaking of players playing their final home matches for a club I have to say I was somewhat surprised Christian Pulisic got an incredible send-off by Dortmund, I mean that was like really emotional, and and I thought it was incredible. I mean, what, what did you? How did you, that make you feel seeing an American at a big European club get that sort of treatment? It was great, and I think it represented the fact that this young kid, first and foremost, decided to come to the uh, to this team to uproot his entire existence and put his faith in this organization that is renowned and very good with dealing with younger players and that he because he came through that system that and that youth system that he was definitely one of them he wasn't just an interloper he wasn't just somebody that came in I think the type of player that he is we didn't see a, a great Christian Pulisic this year but over the five years that he was with this uh, this team in different capacities I think that there's an appreciation for the decision that he made from a life standpoint and then the moments that he gave over that five years and not for nothing but they just sold him for a ridiculous amount of money to Chelsea and so I think the Borussia Dortmund fans in particular recognize that that is the business plan and that that is a feather in their cap when they are able to do that and they are able to do it on a consistent uh, consistent basis and so I think I think it just showed how important they recognize he has been as a player and what what he has come to represent. And the fact that he brought in a whole lot of people that maybe wouldn't have cared about Borussia Dortmund on a continual basis. And that, uh, you know, that's moving now to Chelsea. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes from then. But it was I mean, you know, he he cried and it's it's so, being at a club is so much more than the actual 90 minutes that you play and yes it's a business and yes you get paid and all that kind of stuff but the people that you come in contact with on a daily basis in your life not just the people at the club but the people in your community you're, you're living in that community and you're going to restaurants and you're going to different places if you have kids if you have a wife uh, you know you're going to schools you're getting involved in this community so it becomes a part of who you are over a course of for him it was you know five years different ways over the five years and he came as a young kid kind of developing into a young man living living on his own uh, and I think I think I don't want to speak for him but I would think from the outside it looks like that is the place that he came of age and so it was nice to see that recognition for any any player that it happens to be American was all that more, more special that he was made, able to have made that impact. By the way, he scored in that win over yep. there. He scored in two games in a row, so he's going out with a bang here. You mentioned he's off to England. That segues nicely to the next back three topic. The Premier League came to an end this past week. And the Premier League, by the way, it's it's the earliest of all the top leagues to, to come to an end. And the Champions League final is a little bit later than usual this season. So it's created this awkward 20-day gap for Liverpool and Tottenham. But, you know, that that's a topic for another day. Manchester City uh, were, in fact, uh, crowned champions. They got the result they needed against Brighton. Liverpool won as well, so it finished... 98 points to Man City, 97 to Liverpool. Just an absolutely epic, mind-boggling title race between those two teams. Uh, in the end, Man City prevail. What are your overall thoughts? Well, someone asked me about uh, the... Actually, uh, we can call it the Mrs. Mossy phenomenon. 
okay, in that they, they wanted to know their, their, their interpretation was that when Manchester City won this, that the reaction was muted and that there seemed to have been this groundswell of support for Liverpool pulling this out at the end and that they didn't was disappointing to a lot of people in, in, in the reaction. And that is, that, that is, that is real. And, and I, I, I had said to them, I said, because they asked me, was this, was this true? And I, and I had said that I think when it comes to Liverpool, whether it is the coach uh, in Jurgen Klopp, and in particular in Jurgen Klopp, the players, uh, the story, the history, Liverpool is a much more likable and relatable and interesting team to the, to the general public, to the masses, to people that, that don't have a stake in it. Uh, like like your mother and others, and especially since it's a, it is a global brand, and this history of recent history when it, when it comes to the EPL history of futility in terms of winning that title, and this I know it's sometimes hard to believe that they're an underdog role, but certainly this underdog role relative to Man City, um, and this of this long ingrained brand over there, I think all of that makes it. It makes makes the neutral want to root for for them, and we we've done Star Wars references and all of that. So I talked, you know, the Rebel Alliance versus the Galactic Empire and all that kind of stuff. I think it's completely understandable that someone like your mom and others would be rooting for a Jurgen Klopp led Liverpool in this moment in time. I think it's human nature to be attracted to that type of team and personality much more so than Man City. That's not to take anything away from what Man City has done, but there is this narrative, and part of it is is absolutely true, that there is this nouveau riche type of environment that has bought their success. And once again, I don't want to paint Liverpool as this little team that that doesn't spend any money or anything like that. It's the opposite is, is true. But I think it was interesting to see how people reacted to Liverpool not winning. And I think there was much more of a reaction to that than there was to Man City winning yet again. A couple of overall thoughts. I think Liverpool actually did Manchester City a favor. Listen, winning a Premier League title is always going to be meaningful. It's never going to turn into like a PSG League on situation. Mm-hmm. But had Manchester City ran away with it again this season, there'd be a little bit of a thing of like, okay, these league titles are becoming anticlimactic. You know, it's about the Champions League. They would start to go the way of becoming one of those clubs. And I think Liverpool being as good as they were in pushing Manchester City to the end kind of added weight to this Manchester City Premier League triumph in a way that the season is is a unequivocal success and their domestic achievements are being really celebrated and yeah the Champions League failure is part of the conversation but not to quite the degree that it would be if City had won this title by 15-20 points again do do you agree? I I will agree if Liverpool wins Champions League Uh, I I, no because I'm like your mother in that I don't (laughs) I, I don't I don't have a, a, a team that I that I care about, so I'm the neutral. So I'm, I absolutely have been attracted to what Liverpool has uh, has done and wanted to see what it looked like if they were to win it. However, saying that, I don't care that Liverpool wins the title if they win Champions League. To me, it's much more impressive that Liverpool is on the verge of winning Champions League than having that historic moment from a uh, a a league title. And we've asked this, I've asked our friend Keith Costigan, we've asked all of these, uh, you know, Zach Kenworthy, we've asked these, uh, these tried and true Liverpool fans, which would you rather have? And almost to a man or woman, they say we would rather have the, the, uh, the league title than the Champions League. But for those of us that are part of that global brand that you have exported for all these years, it's much more impressive to me if they win Champions League. But I think even that answer has gotten misconstrued a little bit. As we've talked about at nauseum on this podcast, there are these super clubs now that are obsessed with winning the Champions League, and winning league titles has almost become anticlimactic to the point where if they don't win the Champions League, the season feels like a failure. It's not the same the other way around. Sure, Liverpool fans, if they had their druthers, they'd take the league. But in that case, you're choosing between two amazing, incredible things. No Liverpool fan, if they beat Tottenham, is going to come out of the season and say, boy, what a letdown. We only won the Champions League. You know, it doesn't sort of work 
quite the same way the other but way it's, around. But it's important to ask them, and right. they all fall on sure. the side of winning. It's, it's, it's fascinating that they do, but it's if not. If you ask me, if I was, right, it, right. I would take Champions League over winning the uh, league title every single day because that 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 signifies the global dominance that these right. brands are are trying to achieve. I'm with you. You know, the argument the other way is a 38-match uh, season is more reflective of who the best team was. And, and my argument would be, even if that's true, that still doesn't make it the more prestigious thing to win. Th- those can be two different <laughs> things. And, and clearly the more prestigious thing to win right now as a club is the Champions League. And it was... And it'd be interesting if you asked Man City folks what they would rather win because they've already won it. So I think it would have been a wooden champion. I think if you asked Pep, if you got him down when he's at his most honest, he would say Champions Absolutely. Uh, now, we should uh, put a ribbon on Manchester United season. Uh, they They're lost. still in the EPL, right? They didn't, uh, they didn't <laughs> relegate, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they lost to uh, Cardiff. So uh, disappointing end to another disappointing campaign. Uh, they are off to the Europa League next season. And the thing that really struck me was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer giving interviews after this game and saying, well, we got to rebuild. And, you know, it's funny because each new manager that comes in is going to look at it as if, like, I'm starting with a clean slate. I can't be burdened by what the last guy did. So it's fine for me to throw words around like rebuild. But then, you know, they've had four different managers here since, since Fergie left. You sort of take a step back, and from a larger club perspective, it's been six years since Sir Alex Ferguson left, and we're still talking about a rebuild. Is this still the post-Ferguson rebuild, or is this a rebuild from another rebuild? <laughs> or, like, what, what are we talking about here? Oli, I thought you were supposed to be the, the man with the magic touch. You're able to come in and figure out a way to, to to get it, and yet you're like all the other coaches. Well, I need more money. Well, I need more players. Oh, we got to be in a, re, a a rebuild. It's 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 kind of like contractors, building contractors. When they you, you finally give them the deal, and then things happen. Where they, yeah, but we're gonna have to change this. Well, you never talked about this when we were uh, you were giving us the estimate, and now we got to pull this wall down and stuff like that. So I don't know what Manchester United is going to look like uh, next. year year i i don't necessarily disagree with him but as is the case with a lot of these things this gets solved with money this gets solved either paying off players and getting rid of them selling them uh, and then bringing in uh, players that aren't necessarily better players but collectively they are a better they are a better team it's funny because you always talk about how the word identity gets thrown around Mm -hmm. without really people really stopping to think what it means i feel like rebuild is like that too oh we got to rebuild what does that mean they're just gonna they're just gonna throw out (laughs) throw money at established big names this summer that they perceive to be better than what they have is that is that rebuild does that constitute a rebuild that's (laughs) exactly what it constitutes (laughs) is putting more players putting a different 11 out there that you have re and by the way you're not building anything. You're buying. <laughs> exactly. It's a rebuy. They need to go do a rebuy. That's what Manchester United <laughs> needs to do. Don't think that Ole Gunner's out there getting his hands dirty building anything. He is rebuying a team that he's then going to say, well, I rebuilt it. Now this is the team that I really wanted uh, when it's going forward. So would you consider the uh, uh, Manchester United, did they fail this year? Yeah. Okay. Would you consider Liverpool, if they don't win Champions League, will they have failed this year? It's tough. I, I hate this binary choice of success or failure. There can be degrees of success. Exactly. exactly. I, I think in Liverpool's case, boy, it'd, it'd be really disappointing to not have anything to show for the season. But it's easily spun positively in that it doesn't feel like a one-off. It feels like they've built something to last here. And so they, they've sort of, this is kind of going to be the established level now. And they're going to be knocking in the door for major trophies. So you can kind of spin it forward as if this was the start of something, not necessarily like this one-off opportunity yeah, only, we didn't catch. And only one on. team ultimately could win if if, right. if that team is success and everybody else is fa- right. uh, failure but i will say this and it goes back to the whole super club type of phenomena they're not competing against 75 to 80 percent of the rest of the league when it really comes down to it they're only competing against a couple of teams so when it comes to pep's uh record and it's something ridiculous. He's won 80-something percent of his games, if you go look at it. But what, But that's not really fair, because what you really have to do is take out 80% of the teams and the games that he's ultimately played, and then look at the actual games where he has played somebody that is equal on his level when it comes to the amount of money that they spent and the talent that they have. That's the real test of what you are, because there is this have-and-have-not separation uh, that goes forward. And I'm not saying that, that Liverpool, if they don't win the Champions League, it's a failure right now. But it's not a failure relative to the other 
super clubs that you have out there. And it's certainly not a failure when it comes to the rest of the, uh, the league that you're not even being compared uh, against. But these are, these are the words that we throw out, and it's okay. Anything else, Moss? One last thing on this. I, I'm incredibly curious to see where Mourinho lands. Mm-hmm. And also, a manager I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of days is Rafa Benitez. Because there's a guy that spent over a decade sitting in first class, if you will. You know, Liverpool, sure. Chelsea, Real Madrid, Inter Milan. And then had to eat humble pie a little bit. No, no offense to Newcastle folks. Oh, I'm but, sure they won't take any offense. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think everybody recognizes he's done a good job there considering the, the lack of resources. The question is, you know, I, I'm sure he's, he's itching to sort of get back to the, the top level where he was. The, the, the question is, has he done enough to, to warrant that? And could he emerge as sort of a a less controversial Mourinho alternative. You know, some of these clubs in, in Italy and, and even PSG, there's some thought now they might get rid of Tuchel and would Mourinho be an option there? Some of these clubs that people are linking Mourinho with, you know, Rafa uh, checks a lot of those same boxes. He's won the Champions League. He's won a lot of trophies and he doesn't have quite the same baggage as Mourinho. So could could some of these clubs maybe talk themselves into Benitez over Mourinho? I mean, if you were a club and you had a choice between Mourinho and Rafa Benitez, is it a no-brainer to you, Mourinho? Or? It's not a no-brainer. It's not yeah. a no-brainer. But just for the record, everybody out there that is a Newcastle uh, supporter, that was David Mossy who basically said that Rafa Benitez has been slumming it at Newcastle for the last few years. But in that sense, it, we, we always talk about, yes, but let's see Pep do it with a mid-level table team and all that kind of stuff. Well, we saw Benitez do it, and I think that he is a much better coach now for having gone through this slumming process, if you will, <laughs> at Newcastle than he was before, before that. And so I, I would absolutely hire uh, Benitez because I think he is, a, as I said, a, a changed and a much better manager than he was a few years ago. I've actually been on this big Newcastle kick because uh, Kevin Keegan wrote this really great story for 442 Magazine reflecting back on the 95-96 Premier League season when Newcastle had this huge lead and they blew it and Manchester United pipped them at the end. And actually reading about that title race, it reminded me a lot of Bayern Dortmund this year. There are some similarities. I'm actually going to talk to Warren Barton about that next time I see him. He's not talking if, to if you anymore after, <laughs> after, after what you've said about his beloved uh, Newcastle uh, United. All right, anything but, else, Marcy? All right, now uh, let's move on. Uh, we'll end on this. The U.S women's national team boy it is a uh, fast approaching huh Alexi <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, it's right like 20 something days until uh, the start of the uh, World Cup when they were looked to defend their crown this uh, past weekend we did the game they defeated uh, South Africa who are also headed to the World Cup uh, 3-0 in a friendly at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara what were your observations okay when it comes to the US women's national team as you mentioned these last three games uh, against drastically uh, inferior opponents. We learned nothing when it comes to the goalkeeping situation, which I do feel is going to be problematic because Listenera didn't face any shots. We learned nothing when it comes to the defense, whether it's the actual defenders or the team defending, because South Africa provided little to no opposition. So what did we learn? Well, we learned that Jill Ellis is going to continue to tinker Julie Ertz, who has been in that defensive midfield position, at times went back uh, in this game to her center back position, which is where she started in the 2015 World Cup. Uh, I think that that is going to happen more than we anticipate come this World Cup. Crystal Dunn, who we talked to last week on a special edition of the podcast, uh, podcast, you should check that out, once again is very versatile and playing a bunch of different positions. We saw her at left back, at right back, in the, in the midfield, uh, all over the place. So I still think that there is some tinkering. But I think what it really comes down to is that when this U.S. team is playing against a team that bunkers in, that absorbs pressure and counterattacks on them, and more importantly, has what South Africa didn't have, which is speed and quality on the counterattack. Is this U.S. team able to, one, stifle that counterattack, and two, break down that bunker type of of mentality that they are going to face at some point, Uh, and maybe even in the group stage with uh, Thailand and Chile? I think that's the question, because keep in mind, the last big moment that was the undoing for Jill Ellis and her national team in the Olympics in Rio against uh, against Sweden. So they're going to have to find a way to, to to do that. It was it was a boring game. It was less than inspiring. I thought it was sloppy at times. And that doesn't mean that the U.S. can't go to France in a few weeks from now and, and win the World Cup. But it wasn't a great representation, external representation to what this uh, what this team is now. What 
three weeks before they uh, start the World Cup. All right, Mossy. Anything else uh, before we move on? That is it. Thank you again, Mossy. Uh, okay, so we have come to the end of yet another show, our one big thing from today's podcast, and it is this. Uh, I, I mentioned early in the show uh, my uh, kudos and hat tip and praise for England and what, the, what they are. I will just reiterate that, that, that that is limited. That only lasts for so long. But my real one big thing is this. Uh, over this past week, we have had a number of firings, sackings, whatever you want to call it when it comes to managers. This is sport and game in, when it comes to fans and media and the firing and the sacking of, uh, of managers. Having been in that position and having fired slash sacked uh, managers and coaches, I can tell you right now that there should be nothing fun or joyous about the moment. And if if it is your job, I guess in any capacity, to fire people, if you ever take any pleasure in it, you might want to find a different job and at the very least look at yourself. Uh, you are dealing with human beings. You are dealing with human beings that oftentimes have brought their family uh, to different places, have uprooted uh, their, uh, their normalcy, their sense of normalcy to take this job. And you're telling them that that's it. It's done. Now, all coaches understand that they are hired to be fired, and this is, this is nothing new. What I wanted to mention was the reaction of some of the players, and in particular over there at FC Cincinnati, in which there were quotes attributed to players regarding the coach that were anonymous. And look, I, I believe that you know, part of getting to the truth at times requires sources and anonymous sources. But when it comes to talking about a coach that has been fired. He may or she may be the worst coach ever, and it might be absolutely the right thing to do in terms of firing someone. But have the decency, and more importantly, have the courage to attach your name if you are going to be critical and if you are going to say things uh, that are less than anything that would be looked at as praise when it comes to an outgoing coach or manager. And that you didn't do it, I'm not going to call those voices, and it was coaches, players, and others, both with the club and without the club. I'm not going to call them cowards, but what you did was cowardly. Because whether they deserve it or not, in terms of continuing on or being fired, what they do deserve is you to attach your name and to own any critical comments that you have. And so it was a little... It was a little disappointing. And let the chips fall where they may. Or don't say anything at all. But to hide behind the source and the anonymous source and then to talk about what you feel are problems when it comes to a coach, I think that's bad form. And I don't like it. So not that you're going to care or change when it comes to uh, uh, your comments. And maybe you felt that you didn't have the uh, the confidence or the protection to attach your name to it. If that was the case, then you shouldn't have said anything uh, in the first place. I believe that even a fire coach, even a bad fire coach, deserves to know who people are that are criticizing if they choose to criticize them publicly going forward. It just occurred to me when I saw all this happen uh, this past week with firings. And these are, these are what happens. Coaches get fired, and they will continue to get fired, whether it's in Major League Soccer or anybody else. They will be stories. They will be full of intrigue. They will be things that we will, uh, that we will discuss. But when that happens, other things happen. I just thought it was interesting uh, to, to see it. You may agree. You may disagree. That's part of uh, what we do here each and every week when it comes to the podcast. Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in yet again uh, this week. My name is Alexi Lawless. So everything that I have said, just so you know, it is coming from me. It's not coming from an anonymous source or anybody else. The next voice you hear is going to be David Mossy. No, I have uh, actually said a lot of controversial things anonymously. I like hiding behind that. So <laughs> you like you, hiding in the shadows? Half the quotes you've heard insulting Fox folk over recent years, I'm telling you. So. <laughs> you are deep throat. Uh, okay, anyway, thank you, Mossy. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate it each and every week. We hope that uh, you are enjoying it. We are enjoying uh, doing this for you. We will, uh, we will talk to you again uh, next week on the State of the Union podcast. All right, size the day. 